welcome to the podcast Unimagined, where current and former students share how they imagine education in schools could be regarding student leadership. We ask them to share about their experiences and offer advice on how we can all do better. In this episode, we meet Yawa, a student who came from America as a refugee from Africa. She has come through New Hampshire public school system and has graduated from Southern New Hampshire University, SNHU, with a master's in only five years. She became a U.S. citizen on her own. The experiences as a young child in school is something I will always remember. I personally think this is a story every educator should hear. It is an incredible story. Can you tell me just a little bit about who you are and your story? My name is Yawa Asante. I came to the U.S. when I was five, the spring of 2000, with my father, my stepmom, three brothers, and one sister. I was the youngest. I've been living in New Hampshire for 21 years now. I came from Togo, West Africa. It's in between Ghana and Benin, and Benin is right next to Nigeria. The whole point of us moving to the United States was that my father was a part of the Togolese army, and he was a prisoner of war. He was trying to escape everything that was happening to him. They were looking for him to kill him. He applied for um, asylum and then he was put into a refugee camp. You don't get to like pick where you go. It was a situation of life or death for my father. The average time that people usually spend in a refugee camp is three to maybe 17 years. We were there for, I believe, seven to eight months. As you know, especially here in America, things like that take longer nowadays. But this was in the early 2000s. It was a little bit easier. You left your mom? My father was still legally married to my stepmom, but they had separated. She is on all my papers in the United States listed as my real mom, but she's not. My actual mom lives in Benin now. She's remarried and I have two brothers and two sisters. Do you go home to see your mom? Yep. So I went for the first time in 2019 because I wanted to go after I gained my citizenship. I went to Africa for a month. I visited all the countries. My mom was born in Ghana. I went there. I went to Togo and I went to Benin and I got to see my grandma where I grew up. A lot of things had changed. I felt like an outsider because I lost all those languages except for Ewe. I spoke three other languages, which is Fon, Iwe, French, and Fanti. I tried so hard to learn English that I forgot all the languages that I knew when I was young. It was really hard to communicate with people. I had a constant headache because I struggled to explain things to people that I wanted or needed. Trying to explain to someone where to find the bathroom, it was different in each country. What was the process for you to gain your citizenship and why you waited until you had your citizenship before you went back to to see your family? Yeah, at a very young age, I had to figure out things for myself because I never really felt part of the family. I felt like an outsider. 
I waited um, until I turned 18. Then I moved out on my own and I put myself through college in the midst of all that because I had been living in the U.S. for over 10 years. Your green card expired. And there's a cost associated with everything. I remained under the radar until I could find the money to update my green card. Every permanent resident has an I-94, a Social Security, your green card, and your immunization shots of smallpox, chickenpox, measles. You have to take all of that before um, you come to the U.S. And I want to be clear for those people that think that the U.S. pays for all of it. Each person's paperwork in your family, you have to pay back after two years. When we were in the process of coming here, it was $12,000 and my dad had to pay that after two or three years of us living here. Refugees have to pay that stuff back. It's not for free. A lot of people seem to think that we just get free entry and it's not that at all. Being under all that stress, trying to juggle school, I um, had saved up gotten a new green card, and then I started the process for my citizenship. And that's also money. At the time, it was like $1,200. First, you have to fill out the paperwork. I did it all by myself and paid, and then it got approved. After it got approved, they sent me a letter like, hey, it's been accepted. You come in on this day, and you can't be late, or they'll refuse you if it's even by like a minute or two minutes. Like, you need to be on time with those things. So they took all my fingerprints, ran background checks on me, and then... I think it's two, three months later. I was a sophomore in school. I, I went to Southern New Hampshire University and I was an RA. So I had flashcards that I carried with me wherever I went on campus. The test is comprised of 100 questions and they only ask you 10. If you get the first six right, you pass. So there's a reading portion to the test. There's a writing portion. I got the first six correct when I went into my test day. And I was passed on for the swearing-in ceremony January 2018. All of my teachers from SNHU were there. Everyone that I went to the Boys and Girls Club, my best friend Nana was there. And I got my citizenship certificate. It was a huge weight off of my shoulders because that opened way more doors for me. I'm an American citizen now. I don't have to worry about having a green card and having to renew it every 10 years. And now I could apply for a passport. And a piece of me was kind of sad because I was renouncing a part of myself, but I still wanted to keep connected with. Can you talk to me a little bit about the transition once you got to America for you and your family? The first thing I remember is like being on the plane. I remember my dad brought bread because we didn't know what kind of food we would be met with on the plane. My first American food that I ever had was broccoli. And I thought it was so disgusting. That's what they gave us to eat. I didn't eat because obviously I'm five years old. And what do five-year-olds eat? They want candy and chocolates. So I didn't eat the whole plane ride. It was like a 24-hour like flight. And we landed in New York. And then they brought us to New Hampshire. That experience for flying, I was like, this is such a whole different world. I had never experienced anything like that before. And then we started getting into the American way of living. I'll never, ever forget the street that we lived on. It was a lot of memories. It was a three-bedroom house for seven people. My parents got their own room. My brother shared a room. And my older sister had her own room. And I had a cot in the kitchen. Because seniority 
in uh, Africa is more important. If you're older, like people respect you. So you always have to respect like whoever is above you. And they always get like, not first pick, but they always get better things than you. And I started school, nothing made sense. (laughs) I was constantly confused. People would try to talk to me, say A, B, and C, and I'd be like, thanks. I think that's all I said. But I will tell you that my first sentence I ever formed that I still remember to this day is the glue is sticky. I don't know why, but the glue is sticky is my first complete sense that I had ever formed in my life. And I was so proud of myself. I also didn't understand the days of the week either because I spoke another language. I thought in a different language. It took a long time for me to adjust to the culture here. The way we cooked was different. Every time I went to school, we cooked with a lot of seasonings and spices. People would always tell me that I smelled like food that they had never smelled before because culture is different. But those were always my memories. People would always tell me that I smell bad and I didn't fit in it. And I was like, I just don't get it. What's wrong with me? I started like displacing myself from my own culture because I didn't think that I was fitting in. That's when the damage started, right? And I just like wanted to be better. I wanted to fit in. I wanted to understand like what people were saying. I would never eat at school because I didn't understand the food. But when I finally like started eating because I'd be hungry and it'd be a long time before I got home, I remember they'd make mashed potatoes and chicken and then pour gravy over it. It was a basic school lunch. I started eating it with my hand because in Africa, it's not that we don't have silverware, but it's just like eating with your hands. It's a minimalistic way of life. You already don't have much, so why not just use your hands? And I was eating with my hands and the whole table was looking at me. And I was just like, what did I do wrong? And it's crazy because it's no different than people eating French fries, chicken nuggets, burgers with their hands, but you've seen a person eating mashed potatoes with their hands is a taboo to you. And you call a sister weird. And I didn't want to go back to school after that because so many people made fun of me. And they'd always whisper, that's a girl that eats with her hands. And I was one of three refugee children. One was from Mexico and the other one was from Vietnam. Gerardo and Chow. And those were my two friends when I started speaking English. And it was crazy because we all look different and yet we fit in together. It was crazy to me, but... Those are my earliest memories of trying to adapt to the culture here and feel like I was a part of something. What advice do you have for teachers who have young refugee students in their classroom, in their Mm -hmm. schools? I don't even think anything prepares teachers for having refugee children in their classrooms. Obviously, it's really changing in New Hampshire where more schools have a lot more diversity, but it's still not as much as we want. But my advice would be don't pity. We really do want to learn. Just because we come from nothing and we don't have much doesn't mean that we're below. And you should really try to seek where we're coming from. When we do school work, I think I'm bad at math. You start learning time stables when you're like five years old in Africa. Like you're way more advanced. (laughs) And I was adding, subtracting. Okay, I understand that. And then they showed me a completely different way of times tables, division. I was doing problems in a certain way. And the teacher kept saying it was wrong because I didn't do it her way. You have to come to a common ground with kids who speak a different language and are trying to learn a new one. Because 
a lot of kids love math. You will be the ruiner for them if you don't understand where they're coming from when you want them to get the answer the way that you showed it, but they got it a different way. If you arrived at the same solution, why does it matter? That was my experience. And a lot of my kids that I work with now still tell me the same thing. I got the same answer, but she's saying it was wrong. And I don't get that. Not just math teachers, the way we process things, especially language arts. I struggled with language arts for a very long time because I was reading in a different language in my head and then having to translate it to English and then put it back down on paper. And then oftentimes my answers would be wrong because you were doing so much thinking that you would miss what the context of the story was all about. It's extremely hard. When you're experiencing things in a different language, you hear it in the opposite language that you're thinking. You Mm -hmm. translate it into your brain, into your language. Mm -hmm. You then translate it into a written form, and Mm -hmm. then you have to translate it again back Mm -hmm. into the... The, the language of the teacher. Is yeah. that correct? Yeah, it's a okay. process. And you mentioned in the beginning that you had headaches a lot of the time. All the way up until college. It was overcomplicated. You put a child in a different environment where they're forced to learn so many new things, and then they forget about the things that they had learned. The society forces you to fit in, fit in, fit in, and then they forget that you came from a completely different place And it takes you time. And I was identified with like a learning disability because I wasn't getting it. If I didn't have like people that believed in me and gave me that extra time and took the extra mile, I don't think progressed this much. I still have a hard time with stuff, but it's a lot easier than it was. It gets better every year. And there's a lot more resources out there that I can use on the internet that helped me get through college with very good grades at that, but it always took me longer. I've accepted the fact that it will always take me longer. It, it could be an activity that takes 15 minutes. I will do it in 30 because I want to get it right, but I also want to truly understand. In my interactions with you, you take a lot of time and you're very deliberate and thoughtful. I can see how teachers can misunderstand what you're doing mm-hmm as you're slow and you want to get it right. A lot of students will struggle because they don't want to put something down that that isn't right. And that's been one of the things as a teacher that I've had to really fight my students on is that it is okay to get it wrong because that's where I can teach you. That's where the learning happens. I want to go back to something you said because it really struck me. You gave advice to teachers not to pity our refugees. And after listening to the story, the effort, the almost the financial burden that was required of you to get to America, I actually feel like you have far more than many of us in America. It just really struck me that our first instinct is to pity I'm guilty of that. And I think if any teacher is honest with themselves, they would admit to the fact that, yes, I see my refugee and I think, oh, my poor refugees. But not only do you come with an incredible sense of community, you have languages that we don't speak. We only speak English. That behavior of pity not only discourages and damages your mental 
well-being, but it's really not a fair evaluation. Go back in time and give some advice to Yawa. What advice do you have for her in middle school? Some advice for her high school experience and her college experience, because these are all very different educational experiences. And now that you're where you are, you're very successful. You're working with young refugees um, and, and immigrants in all different capacities. Go back and, and tell me what advice you would give to yourself. Give yourself some patience and time. Everything here is go, go, go. And in Africa, there's no sense of time. You're respectful to whatever may happen to somebody and their family because it is the kind thing to do. If I was in middle school, I would say try not to fit in. I was a target by teachers and by students for not knowing where I was at in my reading level. I felt like I had to have a certain persona to be cool all the time, and I wanted to fit in. Up until my junior year of high school, I didn't know that college was an option for me. I wish that I didn't have to do everything by myself financially, because I think of all the people that got to live at home that didn't have to move out at an early age, how much money they saved. You don't learn about street smarts and financial stuff until you get to college. And at the end of the day, you get to choose if you even want to learn about it. I think that's a course that everybody needs to take. How to get a credit card, open that up. I wish I had somebody to tell me, granted, I'm not like too much in debt from school because I got a lot of scholarships, but still, how could I have reduced that debt? I took all the measures. I was working two jobs, a burden that is put on somebody that's under scholarship is a whole different story because if you're the only one on your FAFSA papers, then you have to figure out how to do your schoolwork, buy your books, go to work. I feel like when I got to college, a lot of my college experience was taken away from me because I had to work. I was always on the go. I never had an area of opportunity to make a mistake because it was a fear of losing my scholarship. You have to maintain a certain GPA to keep that scholarship. That is a heavy burden. I would wake up at 6 a.m., go to practice for the track team, get out, run to breakfast, then run to classes, and then in the afternoon go to actual practice for track. And then after practice, I would go to work, come home, do homework until like 2, 3 a.m., and have to do all that over again. It's insane for somebody that doesn't have much to keep up with all that in a mental capacity. I never had the opportunity to make bad decisions. Not that I wanted to make bad decisions, but like I never had the opportunity to do something that was fun that I didn't have to worry about repercussions. I feel like immigrants and refugee kids always have to worry about repercussions because it feels like once again, somebody's pitying you. So they're giving you a scholarship or they feel like you deserve it, but it, it's always academically. But even academically, I have to work two hours more than the average college student just to get it done for a good enough grade to keep that scholarship. There was a lot of pressure when I got to college, and I don't even know what kind of advice I would have given myself, but I'm saying right now that I think I did a pretty damn good job of completing four years of college in three years so that I could take the fourth to complete my master's. You have to survive after two. And college didn't really do a good job of preparing me for that. 
So I actually recently went to an incredible conference, a people of color conference. And I was honestly very privileged to be able to go as a white woman. But one of the sessions that has left me reeling is the fact that when we offer scholarships in need and the the onus on those students for maintaining that scholarship is almost like setting them up to fail. On top of that pressure, the other thing that's usually required of these students is exhibiting an incredible amount of gratitude. Mm -hmm. And when our institutes who give scholarships to kids in need are going to accept that we need to be grateful. Actually, that student is the gift. Listening to your experience and recognizing what you likely brought to that college. I will admit to my first year on that scholarship, I almost lost it because my GPA dropped below the standard of what they needed and the agreement of the scholarship of a presidential scholar. The name of the scholarship is that you maintain the GPA and you get involved in activities in this new community. Just imagine having to be involved on campus, being on the track team, being in RA, homework, and working. I know that my communications teacher was always proud of me and she nominated me for Penman Pursuits, somebody who exhibits good leadership skills. The first time they nominated me for it, I didn't get it. And I was kind of disappointed because I worked so hard. The second time around when I got it, what's a plaque going to do for me with my name on it? I was volunteer of the year. I was youth, youth of the year, team member of the year, this and that. Thanks for recognizing me. You're welcome. Were there any awards that you've gotten along the way that did feel valuable to you and recognize the way that you wanted? I would say the Young Woman of the Year Award that I got in high school for the Boys and Girls Club, but it was a competition where you had to put yourself out there and tell your story. It was genuine, but it's a competition between all the Boys and Girls Clubs in the USA, and only like three get to go on. I made it to regionals, but never made it to the top, so you could be recognized. Like When you got up there, you got a free car. College was paid. I was fighting for that, but then I lost and everything kind of crumbled. They're like, good job for making it this far. And I was like, I was extremely vulnerable. You know my life story. You know my struggles. It's nice to do that in a way, but it's not nice to pin stories against each other and try to decide which one's the best one. It's the word competition. Your story wasn't good enough. Mm -hmm. Somebody else's story was harder than yours. Right. Why is that something that we celebrate? And if you get that full ride, are there strings attached? All the time. You're underneath the microscope. And they used to say, you're a regional youth of the year member now. I was like, I'm a kid. I'm trying to figure out my life. It's almost like we put you on a pedestal Mm -hmm. and you better not fall. Yeah. Because... We put you up there. Mm-hmm. You are our representative. Yep. I, I guess I understood a lot of this on a very superficial level, but I was never able to connect it to an actual person mm-hmm. to really understand the impact of what applying for a scholarship like that meant or a competition like that meant or mm-hmm. receiving financial aid in the way that you did right. and or living on your own at a young age. Tell me 
what you're doing now and why you're doing the things that you're doing. Program coordinator and I work for the Center for New Americans. I help young immigrant and refugee children just like me find their way in the world. The goal is to have a better life, right? To thrive. And there's just too much pressure for those kids to be great. So in any way I can help them get a leg up in their reading or just understanding social norms and cues that we say here, stuff that I never really understand. If I can help them with that, then I've helped them develop some part of their life. That's where I'm at now. I still would like to move up in the world. The sad part is there's no money in helping people. And, you know, you have to pick between survival and enjoying something that you love to do because you know that it's for a great cause. Can you give advice to the students who have refugees in their classroom, the peers that see other refugees floundering in our culture? What advice do you have to those peers? Be open and understanding to learn about that individual, not their culture only, but as a person. There's a lot that you can learn from someone just by taking that extra step to talk to them and learn about them because that could easily change how their day is going possibly their life. You know, I don't think I would have gotten through my elementary years without Gerardo and Chow. We were all different, but we had one common understanding is that we are different and that we come from different places. And we understand that we do not fit in here, but we can make a group. What does that look like for me as a fifth grader or me as a seventh grader to connect with you. You speak a different language. You eat different foods. What do I do? At first, any interaction is going to be awkward depending on the language level that they know. It depends on how comfortable they are. Some kids get really shy when it comes to the personal questions so quick. I would say get to know them, play a game, and then you go from there. When kids are lost in play, which is what they're really deprived of. If you come here at a young age, you don't get to play. You don't know what that feels like to play in the safe environment and know that there's not going to be something happening in the background that you have to worry about. When you get lost in play, you're more likely to talk because your mind is so focused on something else and you'll just say stuff. I think that would be the best approach if you're looking to talk or make a connection with a refugee child. I love that example. Just play a game. You're right. It lets everybody's guard down. It doesn't feel like there's this pressure to make a direct connection. I don't have to fumble through the language. And I think just seeing humanity for what it is and not seeing you for what you aren't. This has been spectacular. Listening to your story, walking through some of these experiences with you has really opened my eyes. Yawa, how can people um, find you or get to know you? I have a business called Minimal African in which I import goods from Africa and support young women in business overseas. So I support a young woman named Anna. She lives in Accra. While taking care of her siblings and putting herself to tailoring school, she started to make clothes for people as a form of income. And now she has her own little tailor shop where she makes satin silk bonnets for me and she ships them to me and then I sell them here. And then I also work with another woman who processes mm -hmm. Shea Brother and all natural for hair and skin. And she imports that to me. She's been doing that for 20 years in her own little village. She dries, harvests, she does it by hand. 
and I buy from her and I sell here. It just started. I officially became an LLC. Please go follow the page because there's big things coming. On Instagram. Minimal African. That is in the show notes so that people can see your links and follow you. I love that. And I, I love to be able to support you and these wonderful women working hard. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Unimagined. Something that really stood out to me in this episode was the message Yawa shared about the impacts of earning and maintaining a scholarship for college. Please be sure to support her small business on Instagram, Minimal African. What was something this episode brought up for you? Remember to share the episode, comment on an issue you think I should ask students, or help me connect to a student. You can follow me on all social media platforms at Peers Not Fears. The theme music for this podcast, Unimagined, was written and produced by another fellow educator, Keith McClendon.